Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. All right, so perhaps you've heard the old adage, the, the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? The entire, the entire northern part of our country came face to face with this reality over the past several months in dealing with smoke drift from Canadian wildfires. Just last summer, my neighborhood was hazy and smelled like a campfire for weeks because of a mulch fire a few miles away that just smoldered and smoldered for weeks on end. You know, in both of these cases, people never saw the actual fire. Well, some people did, but most people who were affected and saw the smoke never saw the actual fire, but they did see its effects. They could see, they could smell, and probably even taste the truth that somewhere out there, a fire was raging. You know, usually the first thing that we see when there's a fire is the smoke, right? So as we close in on our final weeks in our sermon series, How to Start a Fire, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul utilized this idea of, of looking for smoke to help him in his evangelistic pursuit throughout the Greek and Roman world. You see, for the past several months, we've been looking at the book of Acts and how it presents us with all these necessary elements for the gospel message to spread across the known world like a wildfire. And one of the most beautiful things about the gospel and the community of believers that came to exist because of it was the radically different way that they lived their lives. The Jesus community was known for their radical equality, their care for the poor and the socially marginalized, and their general rebuke of the accepted social and political order. People saw the effects that this was having on the world. They saw the way that their cities and their towns were changing because of the Jesus community. They saw the way that the lives of of the poor, the widows, and the orphans were being affected. They knew that, that somewhere in the midst of all of this was a fire that was burning, even if they couldn't quite yet see it for themselves. They saw all of the signs. And this was largely in part due to the relentless efforts of a man named Paul and his co-workers. You see, Paul was, was the apostle who went out 
to meet with the Gentiles. And Paul's work is basically categorized in this pattern. Paul would go to a town or a city and he would set up shop in the marketplace. And when I mean set up shop, I mean literally set up shop. Paul was a tent maker by trade. And so in each place that he went to minister, he would work his vocation of making and selling tents in the marketplace. And from there, he would go into the local synagogues, the the Jewish places of worship, and he would tell them about Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And this usually went pretty poorly. He'd get a few folks, but for the most part, they'd run him out. And so he'd go back to the marketplace where he built his tents. And he would share the message of Jesus with the Gentiles. And the thing is, the marketplace, it was the perfect place to do that. You see, the marketplace was like the center of the Greek social life. And often this is where like philosophers and and teachers would go and stand on little pedestals and and teach their teachings and philosophize their philosophies in order to get people to come and follow them in their school of teaching. And so Paul, with his pursuit, fit in right here in this place. It was a place where people went not only to buy goods, but to also buy ideas. This happens today still, doesn't it? It's just called Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> and so Paul would share the gospel message and would often get into discussion with those who were sharing their own thoughts on life, religion, and philosophy. And so while ideas was a major part of the marketplace, there was another very fruitful and profitable business in a Greek marketplace as well. The sale of religious paraphernalia. Particularly, Paul was deeply concerned about one thing that he found in these places. Idols. Both of these realities were most prevalently on display when Paul traveled to like the Mecca of Greek philosophy and religion. The city of Athens. So let's just kind of dive right in here to Paul's uh, trip to Athens because what we're going to see is how Paul navigates this situation is the backbone of how we are called to witness to people in our world today. So Paul has been traveling with his friends, Silas and Timothy, not me, I'm not that old, and he goes on ahead of them to Athens to set up shop in the marketplace, and that's where we pick up our story today. This comes from Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? That's what you all say when I'm up here, right? Others said, no, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So this is all on track with Paul's typical MO. But the first verse is going to give us some particular insight into Paul's motives and actually really help us to, to see how radically different Paul's approach is than might have normally be thought to be the way to go about things. Because remember, remember that Paul is a good and devout Jewish man. And the cardinal sin of Judaism was this, idolatry. The first two commandments are, you shall have no God before me, and you shall not make for yourselves any graven images, a.k.a. idols. And the Greek world, and really most of the world outside of the Jewish world, was littered with idols. Idols were the means by which human beings put material existence onto the gods that they worshipped. Idols were how humans made sacrifices to and honored their local and regional gods. Idols were the central reality to the religions of the world. And Paul comes face to face with that reality in Athens, which is like the capital city of all things Greek paganism. But to Greeks... Idolatry was central to their way of life. To Paul, idolatry was a slap in the face to his way of life. But Paul, rather than allowing this matter to deter him or to, to cause him to want to fight with people, Paul digs in and he begins preaching about Jesus. And attracting attention to himself. So much attention that he's brought up to the high council of philosophers in Athens. This is what happens next. It says, now all the Athenians... Oh, I'm sorry. It says, so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. So Paul goes and he's brought to uh, this place called the Areopagus, which is like a council of the highest philosophical minds. And it turns out that unlike when Peter would be brought before the high council in Jerusalem, that Paul's got actually a pretty open-minded audience. Turns out that Athenians actually want to hear something new. The philosophers of Athens have been at the cutting edge of thoughts and philosophy for a long, long time leading up to Paul's visit. And you know how they got to being at the cutting edge of thought and philosophy for a long, long time? They let people speak. They let 
new ideas be brought forward. And you'll remember some of these crazy names with crazy ideas like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The, the foundation of Western thought now at one point in time was a crazy new idea to the Greeks in Athens. And so these philosophers of Athens set the tone for how Paul is going to present to them a new idea. So Paul gladly goes to this place called the Areopagus to meet with these head philosophers on a hill called Mars Hill. Now, if you were to go to uh, modern Athens and you were to look to the highest point in the city, you would see the unmistakable site of the Acropolis. Here's a, a photo of it uh, from the top, the rooftop of the Best Western Hotel in Athens. <laughs> and I'm pretty high up there when I take this photo, but that lit up area is called the Acropolis. And at the center of it is a place called the Parthenon, which is the temple to the goddess Athena. Here's a couple pictures of it up close and during the day. And so the Acropolis was the religious center of Athens. And just below it is a place called Mars Hill, where the Areopagus, this council of Greek philosophers, would meet. And it's not a very impressive thing. It's just a plateaued rock formation that overlooks the city and a modern marketplace. And it was here that this council of philosophers would come and meet with Paul on this day. And so here's a picture of me and some friends sitting on Mars Hill. It's not that impressive. <laughs> but here's another one to show you the perspective of how close it was to the Acropolis. See, in our modern age, we like to think of philosophy and religion as being separate disciplines, as, as coming from a different world, looking at the world in a different way. But in the ancient world, the two went hand in hand. And so Paul, this devout Jewish man, finds himself standing literally in the shadow of like the greatest display of pagan idolatry in the known world, being asked to defend his new philosophy to the greatest thinkers in the world. And so this is how the story continues. It says, then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, 
and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed, he is not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. We too are his offspring. And since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Look at what Paul does here, right? Paul sees the smoke. He, he sees that there's, there's something going on here. He sees that the Athenian people see the smoke as well. They've got idols, and their idols are actually multiplying as they meet with other religions across the world. But they still see that there is a deep gap between their human understanding and the truth of the divine. So in order to attempt to bridge the gap, they've created an idol to the unknown God, an idol to fill in as a stopgap, an idol just in case they were forgetting someone important in their plethora of gods. And Paul's like, you forgot the most important, the only important. And so Paul uses that idol, and he attributes it to the God of Israel. Paul could have seen this idol and scoffed at these people and been like, y'all, this is the dumbest thing you've invented yet, and I've seen some dumb things walking around your dumb town. But rather, Paul takes this knowledge of these people, he sees their desire and he uses it to find common ground with them. He knows that they see the smoke, the, the signs that there is more to this world and to the divine than they can see. And so Paul helps them to see the fire. Paul helps them to see that what they've been looking at is the key to the gospel message. He says, y'all are so close so close, the unknown God that you worship is the God, the creator God, the God of Israel, and also the God of this whole world, who has instilled in you a sense of awe and wonder that you might grope for and find him, and look what you've done. You've made an idol to him, and you didn't even know it. Folks, the God that you seek is not far off. The God that you say is unknown knows you. So Paul goes on. He says, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, 
we will hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul's method here isn't one uh, of shame or of talking down, and, and it isn't one of just complete avoidance of the subject matter. Paul's method is to meet the men of Athens on the common ground that they hold together, and to offer them a, a deeper insight into what exactly it is that they are so diligently seeking after. You know, we live in a world where evangelism gets a pretty bad public reputation, mostly thanks to people who stand on corners with bullhorns and, and those funny signs that they wear on themselves and tell the whole world that we're going to hell. In fact, there's a dude that rides around the South Island in his car with some kind of microphone doing the same thing, right? Right? But that's not really Paul's strategy. He tells them the truth, but he does so by meeting them where they are. Our world is increasingly what is called postmodern and even post-Christian. And what really categorizes postmodern and post-Christian thought is actually not the staunch atheism that became very popular in the mid to late 1900s. What is most common is the belief that there is something out there, but an unwillingness to believe that Christians or any religion has actually got it right. Many people are willing to believe in God of some form or another, but they just have a really, really hard time with the Jesus part. And to be honest with you, I don't think they really have a hard time with the Jesus part. I think they have a hard time with Jesus' people part. <laughs> but people see the smoke. They see the, the way that Jesus' people impact the world. They read the newspaper articles about what happens out here on Saturday morning. They see the good that's done by the church. They see the smoke. They just need help finding the fire. So who's going to help them? That's literally our job. Like our number one job given to us in the, the ordination of our baptism. The literal number one job of every Christian is to help people who see the smoke, find the fire. And we do that by found, finding out, you know, just what it is that people see. Finding out the common ground between our Christian faith and what it is that they're willing to believe in at that moment. And then inviting them to come and see more. And sometimes that's simply just asking them, like, hey, are you able to just believe that I, a somewhat rational human being, believe 
in this Jesus. And most people are open to that. They can believe that you believe. And from there, it's simply a matter of saying, why don't you come and see if you see what I see? That's the strategy that Paul used, but it wasn't a strategy that Paul invented. It's literally the only strategy that Jesus ever employed. Come and see. He had the the beauty of doing some miracles first and then saying, come and see. But the sentiment is the same. The strategy is the same. Come and see. Follow me. And you know, neither Paul nor Jesus let the circumstances of a person's life stand between them and the invitation. Because Paul could have said, these pagans are offensive to God and to me. Breaking the first two commandments from the moment they wake up in the morning all day long to the moment they lay their head down and then doing it all again the next day. They are on like the highway to hell. But instead, he went to where they were. And he said, follow me. Some scoffed at him, but others followed. Some just said, we're going to hear you out a little bit more on this later. Here's the real deal. The chances of someone coming to church here because I put videos on the internet are very slim. I could be the best preacher in the entire world, which I am not, but I could be. And no one would ever know it if they aren't invited to come to the place where I do the best preaching in the whole world. We could be the warmest, most welcoming, and most loving community of people in the world, which we are. And no one would ever know it if no one invited them to come and feel the welcome, the warmth, and the love. People out there in this world, they see the smoke. They know that there's something more to this life than what they've got. There's something more to God than what they see. And you need to go and help them see the fire. So who are you inviting to church next week? It's a great week to invite someone to church. It's one service. I know you all got to get them here an hour earlier, but... There ain't a person out there in this world that you know that doesn't believe in food. And we're going to have that. So who is it? Who are you inviting? Don't let the sun set on it. Ask them. Come and see. That's how we're going to keep this fire growing. Amen? Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we, we thank you for, for the ways that you have shown yourself to us. We thank you for the people that said to us at some point in our lives, come, come and see. And we thank, that, thank you that you didn't require much of us in that moment. Just, just a willing heart. And so God, we pray for, for everyone who's going to be asked this week and then the weeks to come to, to come and see, to follow you. I pray that you would prepare their hearts, that 
you would be guiding them, showing them the smoke and giving them the curiosity to come and be a part of the fire. And so God, we, we love you and we, we pray your blessing over this church, over this city, and over the hearts of, of all people. God, that through your grace, you would meet with them and draw them closer to you through us, your people, your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.